Hello, my name is Giovanni and this is Social Medicine, my weekly therapy session wherein we delve deep into the issues that are on my mind. Today I'll be tackling a topic that I think most of you listening can relate to, even if you don't know it. Collecting is the accrual and display of items due to their intrinsic or emotional value. That is to say that some people may collect something based on its rarity, such as coins or memorabilia, and others collect because of their personal attachment to a certain celebrity, character, or intellectual property. Unlike other hobbyists, collectors don't generally have a certain... archetype that they fit into at least not really i understand that there may be a stereotype of collectors being more socially inept materialistic nerds whose very own social ineptitude led them to seek community or financial or financial slash emotional security through collecting you know seeking synthetic happiness but it would be wrong to fit all collectors under these generalizations each collector is unique not only in what they collect but also why they collect it i will admit as someone who would describe themselves as a casual collector i have personal stakes in this claim and in the exploration of this subject, but I genuinely do believe that the collector mentality is in all of us. In fact, I know it is. I know some of you collect stuff like video games, vinyl records, trading cards, dolls, action figures, clothes, books, autographs, sports memorabilia, what have you. And even if you don't collect anything, you are still a collector. As human beings, we have an inherent fascination with finding happiness, purpose, or a combination of the two. Our American worldview seems to be that this can be reached uh, once success is found first. And how do we find define success? That's right, with how much much money we have accrued and we cannot accrue any money without working first so we are working to collect collecting to succeed and succeeding to exist i know it's a bit of a stretch but it was necessary for my claim that we are all collectors to you know hold ground in this episode i'll be sharing my personal history with collecting going over answers i found as to why we collect based in history and psychology drawing the line between collectors and hoarders and exploring some of the weirdest collections i found through my research so whether you fit into the classic description of a collector or you fall under my my definition of financial collecting in the name of success and happiness i think there's a little something for all of us to learn today so let's learn together collecting is something that i've always found interesting and that i wanted to be a part of partly because of the investment opportunities of collecting rare valuables but also because of the emotional investment one partakes in when collecting things that they are fond of but that is not the only way my history with collecting can be divided i can also categorize my collecting into active attempts at collecting and accidental cases of acquiring large amounts of stuff based on my adoration for the object uh, and my use of it how it was intended i'm of course referring to video games in the latter example but for the former my earliest memory of purposely trying to collect is learning about collectible rare coins from reading books about at public library i read about coins and did as much seeking out as a prepubescent kid could do with the resources i had i do remember having some good coins but i don't remember what became of them they weren't outrageously rare so i couldn't have sold them for an absorbent amount i would have remembered after that i started to collect stickers and trading cards my sticker collection was solely from the summer i spent in in mexico in the year 2010. That was the summer of the 2010 FIFA World Cup in South Africa, which was the most exciting time of my soccer years and still have fond memories of watching the games with my family and playing soccer outside with my cousins. This was when I reached the the height of my soccer fandom. During this time, I found that companies and stores would try to capitalize on this by selling more soccer-related objects or advertising the World Cup through different sort of ads such as uh, brand deals. But one day, I found a South Africa FIFA World Cup sticker book at the newsstand I would regularly frequent when shopping 
shopping for game related uh, game related magazines. This sticker book had spots for all the players uh, participating in the event. And of course, I developed the need to collect and display my favorite players. I would ask my mom to buy me the book or I asked my mom to buy me the book and a couple of sticker packs. After that, I would ask her to buy me a pack every time we passed the newsstand. And I made sure that we did at least once every couple of days. I never filled up the book, but I did get the stickers of my favorite players, such as Lionel Messi. I don't know what happened to the sticker book, but I do know that the Russian anticipation and excitement I felt when opening a new pack would later result in my Pokemon card collecting. Similarly, every time we would go to go uh, Walgreens, I would leave with at least one pack of Pokemon cards. My excitement was fueled by someone I've mentioned plenty of times on the show, Jason, my childhood best friend. He would also collect Pokemon cards, and he is the one who convinced me to collect in order to duel with him. We never really understood the rules of the game, so we made our own rules. It was a great time, and unlike my sticker collection, I actually still have have all of the Pokemon cards I collected during that time. I got some good stuff, but nothing really worth a crazy amount, which is okay with me because finding my binders of the cards and going through them with my girlfriend uh, and reminiscing about a, a different time, you know, remembering my love for the show, the games, and the cards, and all the happiness that came from it, and getting to recount the story of how I got my favorite cards and why they are my favorite, that to me is what collecting is about. That's something I hope to continue down the line and something that is already starting with my niece and nephew and my current collection of Amiibo figures. For those out of the loop, Amiibo are these figures based on Nintendo characters with in-game functionality on certain Wii U, 3DS, and Switch games through the NFC technology on the base of, of the Amiibo. Obviously, I am a huge fan of Nintendo games and a, have a certain attachment to these characters. To me, collecting and displaying these figures is a way for me to express my adoration of these characters and the series that they represent. And I get to share this with my niece and nephew, who always stare at my collection of Amiibo and wonder and comment on what they see. Often they ask about the characters' names and which ones they think look cool and ever since my nephew was a baby i would bring him into my room and share a moment with him as we looked upon my collection i would point out or i would point out each figure and tell them tell him their names and would always remind him that this collection would one day be his and his sisters both literally and figuratively i want them to grow an attachment to these characters the same way i did as much as i want them to these characters for them to be theirs it's something that's already happening i've given each of them a yarn yoshi amiibo that they always bring whenever they come over their affection to the yoshi in comparison to their other toys is unique. They care about it and run their fingers across its features like its giant nose or his rounded dinosaur spikes running down his back. I like to think that this is a learned behavior from seeing me and my careful display of figures. Like like I said, this emotional attachment to not so much the objects themselves as much as what they represent is why I collect. It's how I have learned to express myself and particularly my fandom. Instead of talking about what I like, I can show you. There are countless other things that I collect that I could spend an entire episode talking about, but instead I want to explore the reasons why we collect as a whole. I've given my personal reason, and but I don't think it's a sufficient explanation for our general desire to collect as a species. But I realize that this would be an impossibility. There isn't a single reason as to why we collect that would encompass all human beings collecting habits. Our habits and hobbies are formed out of environmental stimuli and personal pleasure, but this could look differently depending on the person, right? There's a whole area of psychology that's dedicated to this. Among the things we think are important are probably it gives people a goal to pursue, kind of a pursuit of some sort of meaning. Um, it might also be a way of connecting to other people, so other collectors and the people who are associated with the objects you're collecting, celebrities or historical figures. It can give you a bit of kudos, so you get respect for the collection that you've got. And one that's linked to that, which I think is becoming more and more prevalent, is your collection can actually be worth something. It's almost like a sort of 
fun version of the superannuation scheme. Now, if we look at the examples I provided in regards to my personal experience with collecting, they can all f neatly fit under the reasons to collect as described by psychologist Paul Duckett. When it comes to my brief stint in coin collecting, it certainly was fueled by my in interest in it as a form of investment. My collecting of soccer stickers could certainly be classified as a pursuit of a goal, in this case, finding my favorite players, and my collection of Pokemon cards helped make me feel a part of a global community. But what about my video game collection or my amiibo collection? Well, when it comes to video games, I think my other hobby of actually playing them should be reason enough for my collecting of them. As for my amiibo collection, it stemmed from both my adoration for what they represent and the sharing of something I love with those I love. My dad's a collector. He collects Life magazines. He's a photographer and enjoys the visual art of these, uh, of these objects. And uh, his Life magazine collection is more than just about art. It has a very autobiographical quality to it. He grew up in a period when Life magazine was in its heyday. And so a lot of the events that Life uh, focused on and uh, had photography about uh, happened during his lifetime. So it's a way for him to reflect on the events uh, that occurred in his early adulthood. And in that way, it's very personal. So it has this, this strong uh, personal memory. Autobiographical memory is one of the major features of human memory. It's uh, the situations that happen to us, our early birthdays, our weddings, the birth of our children. These are autobiographical memories and objects that remind us of those things are quite important to us. I mentioned I'm a collector. I collect pinball machines. They're a lot bigger than stamps, that's for sure. Uh, why do I do it? Well, when I was a kid, my brother and I would play pinball at arcades and bowling alleys, and uh, it's, it's an autobiographical memory. It's a part of my life and part of my relationship with my brother uh, connecting over these, these pinball machines. As psychologist Daniel Krofchek said in his TED talk titled, Our Brains Are Wired to Collect Things, collecting helps us relive moments from our past and helps keep those memories alive. I, for example, can look at my bookshelf and look at video games, movies, and books from my childhood. I can look at my DVD collection and be transported back to the time I binge-watched all three Lord of the Rings movies for the first time, or to the time I arrived late at night after an academic team tournament while in middle school and vomiting from presumed uh, car sickness as soon as I got home, only to be surprised by a DVD copy of The Dark Knight Rises that my sister had bought for me, which she had also taken me to see upon its theatrical release months earlier. Yes, the things we collect can help us express our love and appreciation for a certain brand, IP, characters, or piece of media, but they also have the aforementioned ability to help us relive certain happy memories and can further represent a specific time in our life. Furthermore, uh, Krofchek explains how collecting is an inherently social hobby. If I mention Twilight Zone or Adam's Family, some of you are thinking those are old television shows. A few of you out there are going to recognize those are famous pinball machines. You ever played the Twilight Zone in college, maybe? In the 1990s, that was one of the major collectibles. It's not an accident that those are pop culture references. We think about them at multiple levels, and we can connect over those. So that's one of the last reasons that we really collect, and it's connecting with other people who are like-minded. Our brains are very social. We have social rewards. We experience the reward of being around other people. And we have a hormone called oxytocin. Oxytocin elevates when we're around like-minded individuals in groups, as uh, social psychologists would say. And so our brains likely course with oxytocin when we connect about 
the time we played Twilight Zone and we dealt with the Powerball, which was this little ceramic ball which came out when you got multi-ball. If you've played it, we can talk later and compare notes and our oxytocin levels will rise uh, because it's things we have in common. This is why Comic-Con is an enormous industry now and people dress as Wolverine and Wonder Woman and they go out and meet other adults who have dressed as those same characters and we can bond over these weird, wonderful, interesting facts that all of us share. And so oxytocin is one of the drivers for that within our brains. So this must be where the association between socially awkward nerds and collecting really came from. The quest to release oxytocin, to bond and form a community with others. This, I think, is at the heart of collecting. Not necessarily community building, but that it is certainly a huge part. I'm talking about association. When we collect, we feel happier. We feel happier because we get to think back on a happy memory, or we feel happier because we get to form bonds with people that we would otherwise see as strangers if it weren't for the fact that they too dressed up to go see the latest Star Wars movie, or because they attended a fan convention that you attended. We collect because it gives us purpose in life. Remember what I said earlier about humans searching for purpose and happiness in life through success? Well, I only gave a generalized definition of, of success in order to prove a point. But of course, not everyone measures success through the acquisition of money. Some of us, the, health, the happier and healthier of us, measure success through other factors. Success to some might look like reaching mental and emotional security or maybe physical security as opposed to financial security. Maybe some people think the answer to happiness is through the re relationship one builds throughout life or their relationships i should say whatever the reason whatever the definition of success one decides on collecting can in one way or another help you find it but what of the historical context of collecting maybe we could look further into bi the biological or psychological research done on this on this could that have any say as to why humans collect now certainly the urge to collect is very primitive and is found throughout the animal kingdom over 70 species have been documented to collect rats and crows for example the bowerbird of Eastern Australia and Queensland collects unusual objects as part of an elaborate courtship ritual. So some researchers think collecting goes back to our early days as humans. For our hunter-gatherer ancestors, collecting food could mean the difference between life and death during a harsh growing season or famine. So it's not surprising this trait evolved. But collecting Beanie Babies won't help you survive a winter. Sorry 90s kids, they're pretty worthless unless it's a rare princess die bear or something. So what is going on in the brain? Like Dr. Zen said, it's the thrill of the hunt. When you find that thing, like that rare baseball card, your brain releases a hit of dopamine. That tells your brain, yeah, this is good, do it again. This probably helped our ancestors find food. Finding some ripe berries made their brains go, yep, awesome, these will keep us alive, do it again. But after a while, the brain gets used to it and it doesn't release as much dopamine the next time they found those berries. So you keep seeking, keep hunting for the next thrill. That kept our ancestors alive, it keeps us seeking and collecting. I think now is as good a time as any to talk about the dark side of collecting, hoarding. To some, those two things are one and the same, but there has to be a line drawn between the two, right? Otherwise, we would be contradicting previous research that said that collecting is a very normal human thing that is backed by historical, psychological, and biological research by saying that this behavior is not normal and is indeed a result of some kind of disorder or brain malfunction. I like to think that I've given a pretty extensive look and definition of collecting, so what is hoarding? Well, here is Ernesto. Ortiz Cruzado, a, psychi a psychiatrist at the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center, explaining hoarding disorder and what treatment looks like and entails. Hoarding is uh, something that we have seen uh, more recently um, and has been described in, in uh, one of our newer uh, textbooks, the DSM-5. It constitutes essentially the need to 
uh, keep things that might not necessarily be beneficial and in fact might even cause more problems in terms of not only space and spatial problems but also problems with health problems uh, as well as relationship problems. It's part uh, of the spectrum of uh, obsessive-compulsive behaviors in general and it's considered uh, it is certainly one of the diagnoses that we uh, deal with and the both could be treated again with the approach of having some medications uh, that could help as well as some um, psychotherapy which has also been shown to be helpful. I think that sometimes uh, one of the difficulties with hoarding in terms of that behavior is that it's uh, actually egosyntonic, which is a term we use saying that the person actually feels comfortable doing it. So it's a little bit more difficult for them to actually ask for help. So sometimes family members can notice some of the changes in behavior and they're actually able to uh, bring that to the table. But the patient also needs to reach a point where they feel that they do need the help so that we could provide it. Uh, one of the things with psychiatry is that for the most part, uh, we can't force treatment on people, even though sometimes they might be needing uh, some of the help. Furthermore, I found a really insightful video on the subject, which details how big of a problem this is in America, the genetics reasons that might result in hoarding behavior, and the debilitating outcome of hoarding both physically and socially. Stuff. Everyone has it, collects it in one way or another, but clearly some collect more stuff than others. And some of those collect so much stuff, their collection becomes downright debilitating. Hoarding disorder, according to the American Psychiatric Association, impacts as many as 6% of all Americans. In a country of 325 million, that means as many as 19.5 million hoarders. That's more than the number of bipolar and autistic Americans combined. In 2013, for the first time, the so-called Bible of Psychiatry, a.k.a. the DSM-5, recognized compulsive hoarding as its own mental disorder. And there's a belief it might be, for some, a matter of genetics. Remember biology class? Yeah, neither do I. But if you did, you might recall this. Each one of our cells contains 23 pairs of chromosomes. This study suggested a region on chromosome 14 is linked with compulsive hoarding behavior. The average age of first symptoms, 13. Yet the average age of someone seeking treatment for it, 50. Most hoarders are men and many tend to live alone, having alienated even close relatives with all of that stuff. Hoarders tend to target free stuff, trivial things like neighborhood flyers or restaurant sugar packets. All feel a sense of intense dread when faced with the possibility of losing any of their stuff. Think of it this way. Picture a precious heirloom or family photo of yours. Now imagine watching someone light it on fire. Hoarders feel that connection with everything. If left untreated, it tends to get worse as more and more stuff accumulates. There's even a scale to rate hoarding. A level one looks like this. Nope, no clutter. Then there's level two, level three, level four. This is where experts tend to say compulsive hoarding begins. Level five, six, seven, eight, 
And then there's nine, a ceiling-touching, room-filling, danger-inducing pile of stuff. Experts say efforts to force hoarders to get rid of their piles of stuff usually fail, as other piles tend to come back within just a few months. Treatment options are limited. The more successful ones tend to try to convince a hoarder, much like an alcoholic, that he or she has a problem that must be addressed. One thing is clear. While not every collector is a hoarder, every hoarder collects so much stuff, it all confines them to a life lived alone and at risk. So hoarding is essentially the arbitrary collection of stuff that one shouldn't normally have an emotional attachment to, but does. An attachment that largely originates from some sort of relational vacuum left behind upon the loss of someone's closest and most important relationships. You would know when someone's collecting habits reaches the point of hoarding, and the levels of hoarding discussed in the previous video are meant to serve as basic outlines and indicators of one's progression or regression into hoarding. Obviously, someone who has a neatly organized room dedicated to displaying their sneaker collection isn't on the same level of someone who arbitrarily hoards things that other people would consider trash. So the size of the collection isn't so much a sign of a hoarder as much as the intent and the deliberate attempt to uh, collect certain things, as well as the potential hazard to someone's uh, well-being. Hoarding disorder is no joke and should be understood as a serious disorder that it is and not just as uh, not just to be thought of as someone being nasty or choosing to live that way. I hope that this section helped resolve any misconceptions any of you may have regarding what it is that separates a collector from a hoarder. Now, just because we have established that most collectors aren't hoarders or suffering exhibiting uh, obsessive compulsive behaviors, it doesn't mean that all collectors are created equal. And I'm not talking about sizes of one's collection. As a self-described casual collector, I'm not one to talk. And I'm definitely not talking about some collectors in seriously disparaging remarks or making a statement about human rights. That's preposterous. I am simply talking about the fact that some collectors have a tendency to collect more uh, niche stuff. Again, it's important for me to restate that what I mean by the most, uh, by the word weird isn't to lay claim that some of these collectors are lesser humans or that they should be shamed for their collections. By weird, I mean different, uncommon, not something you see every day. To start, and as a sign of good faith, I'll go over one of my collecting habits. As I stated before, I collect things I generally, I generally collect things, sorry, I put to practical use, such as video games, movies, and books. But I also tend to collect things for aesthetic and sentimental reasons, such as video game console boxes and amiibo. Well, one that I suppose would fit into the latter category is my very small collection of cereal. That's right, I have a collection of unopened cereal that I keep in my room. They all have a couple things in common in that they are less common types of cereal so no fruit loops or cheerios and also that they are based on intellectual properties that i am that i am a fan of the fact that these cereals are released in comparatively limited quantities for a limited time touches upon the collector as an investor mindset in me while their icon iconography and representation of characters from series i am a fan of touches on the emotional attachment side of collecting but this isn't the weirdest collection i've ever seen now i will refrain from talking about collections that would fit under most people's definitions of disgusting but the previously stated disclaimer still applies the people that collect their toenail clippings or pup or pubic hairs or what have you aren't lesser than those who refrain from engaging in such behavior but social norms dictate that at the very least these people are weird uncommon different but still harmless instead i want to focus on a couple of weird collections that fall under the more interesting side of the word for starters uh, we have this gentleman who has the largest collection of mcdonald's memorabilia the phrase ketchup in your veins is something we use in McDonald's when you, you love the business, when you feel that love. 
Meet Mike Fontaine, owner of the world's largest collection of 75,000 pieces of McDonald's memorabilia. The 60-year-old has spent almost half a century amassing a gigantic haul of everything to do with the famous restaurant. And his astonishing labour of love has been meticulously catalogued and put on display in his home in Pennsylvania, USA. Behind the doors of this seemingly ordinary house is a colourful history of a global fast food favourite. I have glasses, I have Happy Meal toys, Happy Meal displays, equipment, lapel pins. My table of contents is 398 different categories. Nine rooms in Mike's home have been given over to his collection, displayed on two miles of shelving. This is my cup and glass room, and there's over 1,000 different McDonald's cups, glasses, in all different categories. Mike's career with McDonald's began as a teenager in 1968, when he was just 15. I started with McDonald's when I was 15, and at age 30, I actually owned a McDonald's restaurant. Today, for the first time, Mike is allowing an archivist from the McDonald's Corporation to see inside his home. In my opinion, as the McDonald's archivist, I believe Mike has the most encompassing collection in the world. It's in pristine shape. They're one-of-a-kind pieces. It's just awesome. With the collection still growing, Mike has big plans for the future of his life's work. My ultimate goal for this collection is for McDonald's to help me build a museum. By charge of admission, the money could go to Ronald McDonald House Charities to help kids around the world who have cancer. It should go without saying that people like this who spend thousands and thousands of dollars collecting are pretty well off and have a lot of disposable income. But having a lot of money isn't necessary to collect, as is shown by these next two clips, wherein the collectors in question are children. I have about 200 fans. I have pedestal fans. This is a Holmes pedestal fan. And the reason I bought it, these blades, table fans. This is a Fanimation Urban Jet. It kind of looks like the fins from a 1950s Cadillac. Tower fans. Tower fans are slim, so they can fit in tight spaces, yet they move a lot of air. Box fans. This is a beautiful treasury. Perfect example of a box fan treated well. It's got a very great sound. Listen to it on low. It's beautiful. It's like a bird humming. Hassock fans. A Hassock fan, at first you think, oh, that's just a footstool. Well, actually, as you can see when I lift it up, there's a fan, motor, and blade. The only thing 13-year-old Logan Holes of Sibley, Iowa likes more than the sound of one of his over 100 vacuum cleaners is the feeling of one in his hands. I feel joy when I vacuum. I always vacuum at least three or four times a day just to get that nice feeling. He gets up in the morning, he cricks the vacuum on, vacuums his bedroom. Then when he comes downstairs, vacuums living room. And then through my living room, through the dining room, and then my kitchen. And he will come home from school, then vacuum again. Sibley is a small town. Everyone knows everyone, and they may not know us directly, but they'll be like, hey, your son's the vacuum kid. Next thing you know, we're receiving vacuums from these people that were broken. And uh, most of the people thought it was just to let him play with them and experiment with them and things like that. But now he's repairing them and handing it back to them, saying, here's your vacuum back. And they're going, I just gave it to you to play with. I didn't expect it to return in working condition. 
I wanted to add to my collection. Hey, Brenda. Hi, Logan. Got a vacuum for you. So, I created a business, Logan's Miracle Works Vacuum Cleaner Repairs. These are great examples of collections that border on the obsessive, but at least in the vacuum kid's case, led to a level of practicality and productivity rarely seen from collections based on obsession. But I think one of my favorite collections I stumbled upon that to me perfectly encapsulates the type of weirdness I'm trying to portray here is John uh, Reznikov's collection of celebrity hair locks, which is believed to be the most expansive collection of its kind. Here he is describing the appeal behind this very weird and very expensive collection. What is the appeal of collecting hair, human hair? It kind of is centered in Victorian tradition. And a hundred years ago, if somebody famous came to town, let's say Robert E. Lee, you didn't ask for his autograph like you would uh, a celebrity today. You asked for a little snippet of his hair. And he would let you actually take scissors to his hair and cut it, or he would just pull it out? Well, usually he might be with somebody who might have a knife or scissors, and he'd cut a little strand and that's how a lot of the hair in my collection is preserved. Not all of it. Some of it has a little bit more macabre origins. This is what he says when asked how he would respond to detractors. So what do you say to people when they say, this is a little weird? See, I am an autograph and document dealer by trade. That's what I do, and this is kind of a sideline. We're a society of hero worshipers. We always want to be close to somebody who we admired or who we think about or who is important historically and we're we're trophy collectors is what we are so when you when you frame it in that way it's it's not that strange I personally understand the appeal behind this collection. As someone who values the importance of studying and understanding our history, keeping history alive through your collection is, to me, a social positive, be it through collecting historical figures' lack of hair or autographs or whatever else it may be. Now, collecting is a great way of keeping your happiest memories alive, expressing your adoration of certain characters and brands, investing, and bonding with like-minded individuals. I collect, you collect, we all collect to some capacity, although some may, people may have a negative view of collecting and instantly equated to its most extreme form known as hoarding and although there can be some downsides to collecting it's important to note that collecting is just another way for someone to find happiness meaning and purpose in a large and expansive world full of love and hate so in my eyes collecting is just another way to get through the ugliness in our lives so why knock it unless of course one's collection can only exist from actively and directly hurting others like collecting heads or whatnot in that case fuck you anyway that's gonna do it for me this week thanks again for listening i hope you enjoyed this exploration of the world of collecting. If you enjoy the show and appreciate the time and effort I put into researching, writing, recording, and editing it, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash social medicine. It's only one tier of a dollar a month and that's for anyone who enjoys the show and wants to help build it. Thank you for your support, whether it's donating or listening. I do this for you as much as I do it for me. Please have a good day. Stay safe and stay sane. Goodbye.